Brothers and sisters, join me, if you would, in the book of Luke. Our passage today comes from Luke chapter 5 and verse 33, and we'll be reading down through chapter 6 and verse 11. Luke chapter 5, verse 33, down through Luke chapter 6 and verse 11. We're picking up again today in the middle of this series of confrontations between Christ and his critics. If you were with us last week, you remember what happened there. The Lord Jesus saw Levi, also we know him by the name Matthew, sitting in his tax booth doing what he always did, ripping people off. And the Lord did a great work in his life. Uh, This man who formerly was living for himself, loving himself, pursuing his own selfish interests and pursuits. Now he began to love Christ. He dropped everything and he began to follow the Lord. He had a new master and a new love. The Bible tells us leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And you know what happens next, the very next thing in his life He and the Lord Jesus uh, throw this great banqueting feast and Levi invites all of his friends from the ancient equivalent of the RRS, really would have been a lot worse than that, trust me, Um, but all of his old buddies are there, all of these old, uh, his tax collector friends, which is exactly the kind of thing you don't want to do if you want to... uh, avoid drawing any attention from the, the religious ex- establishment. Well, Levi doesn't do that. The scribes and the Pharisees come up to him and they say, why do you eat and drink with scribes and uh, Pharisees, or scribes and tax collectors? What are you doing with those kinds of people? And you know what Jesus says. He says, those who are well have no need of a physician. But those who are sick have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Don't you understand who my audience is? Don't you understand who I've come to minister to? Well, that is not enough to satisfy them, as we're going to see today. Not only to do Jesus' disciples eat and drink with the wrong kinds of people, but they just eat and drink too much. There's too much of that sort of thing going on. They're they're just too celebratory, too high-spirited. There's too much enthusiasm among the people of God. They're not nearly dignified enough for those kinds of people who would like to think of themselves as being spiritually minded. So what does Jesus have to say about that? What does Christ have to say about that sort of thinking? With God's help, let's turn our attention to the reading of God's word, Luke chapter 5 and verse 33. They said to him, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. 
No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one after drinking old wine desires new, for he says, the old is good. On a Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered them, have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those with him. And he said to them, the son of man is Lord of the Sabbath. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was withered, and the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts. And he said to the man with with the withered hand, come and stand here. And he rose and stood there. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life, or to destroy it. And after looking around at them all, he said to him, stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. But they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. What does life look like? Or what should life look like when Jesus is in the picture? That's the big question I want to wrestle through with you today. It's one of the big questions that this text draws out for us, and we're starting in verse 33. We have this picture of John's disciples, and they are fasting and they are praying all of the time. The same can be said for the disciples of the Pharisees, but now Jesus' disciples come along, and they don't do that sort of thing. They eat, and they drink, and they do so freely. Now bear in mind that in the Old Testament, there was only one fast that was prescribed annually on the, on, at the, leading up to the Day of Atonement. But by the time you get to the first century, you have this whole culture uh, within Judaism where you can say that the measure of your spiritual, spiritual maturity, the, the, the measure of your spirituality in many respects can be judged by just how many meals you miss, how much fasting you give yourself over to, the Pharisees had a tradition of fasting twice a week at this time. It was, had, been, had been widely popularized. Every Monday and Thursday, you were going to fast. Well, along come the disciples of Christ, and 
they don't seem to pay any regard for what are the obvious cultural signs of devotion to the Lord. And you can see how this would have presented all kinds of tension, all kinds of, of, of trouble and resentment. And so this issue is raised to the Lord. It says, they said to, to him, they come to Jesus and essentially say, what gives? Why are your disciples eating and drinking? Now, there's a little bit of a question here as to who the they is in verse 33. Who is speaking there? Luke uh, implies that it's the Pharisees. In the, in the preceding passage, uh, they are the ones who have just been speaking with Jesus. They, they come and they ask, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners, and then we turn around in verse 33, and there they are again, they said to him. Well, if you look over at Matthew's account, it says the disciples of John came to him, saying, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? So, so, so which is it here? Well, actually, Mark helps us here. He helps us sort it all out. And it says there that they were all fasting, and people came asking this question. So it would, it would seem that you have representatives from both sides here, John the Baptist disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees, and they all share in common the same practice and the same concern, the same kind of question. We know that John the Baptist was an ascetic. He lived out in the wilderness. Uh, he wore those garments of camel's hair. He ate locusts and wild honey. He, he, he practiced this lifestyle of, of self-denial, which in many ways was a reflection of the preparatory ministry that he had as the forerunner of the Lord Jesus Christ. He came preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And so you can, you can see how his disciples would have readily patterned their lives after the one that, that they were following. Well, the Pharisees are a little bit different, though, just on the outside, maybe it looks like they share in common the same practice. The Pharisees are different on one very important point, though, and that they don't practice their asceticism and their self-denial out in the wilderness. They do it in the public square. They do it in the middle of everybody. They do it where they can be seen by others. They want to make sure that everyone around them can see just how holy uh, they really are. When they would fast, the Bible tells us that they would actually purposely disfigure their face. So everybody would know just how gloomy they really were how long they had been without food. So they have this very uh, severely distorted view of what holiness really is, what it means to be holy before the Lord. In their minds, the sadder you are, the holier you are. And what a tragic thing that is. What a tragic reality that is. Maybe you have known some people who are professing Christians who seem to wear that on their shoulder as well. But here, it seems that on one side you have what you might call sincere inquirers 
in the disciples of John the Baptist, and then on the other, you have spiteful critics among the Pharisees. Luke seems to focus more of his, his attention on the latter, those who look at Jesus' disciples and, he's, and, and they say, well, they're just too festive. There's too much celebration going on, and they're disturbed by it all. They don't like the whole thing. They view the gladness of Jesus' followers as somehow incongruent with true spirituality. They have it in their heads that a truly religious man, a truly spiritual man, always looks a certain way. He always conducts himself in a certain manner. He always gives himself or abstains from certain things. So they have all of these preconceived notions in their heads about what makes for a godly man. Now the question we want to be asking ourselves at this point is, where does this come from? Where is the basis for any of these ideas that they had gotten about what a living walk with the Lord really looks like? More to the point, more narrowly focused, we could say, is there any purpose to fasting for fasting's sake? Is our attendance to the spiritual disciplines, uh, to the means of grace, to things like fasting and prayer and worship, are those things a fixture in our lives because of true affection for the Lord, or is it something else? Is it born out of sheer duty, sheer habit? Or is it born out of a love for God? Do we feel duty in our heart? Or is what we do, is the worship that we render to the Lord a reflection of the heart's desire for a a living relationship with them? Is it a reflection of what um, the the heart is welling up with uh, of thanksgiving and praise to the Lord? Or are we just jumping through religious hoops for their own sake? What really is in view when we give ourselves to these sorts of things? Jesus is going to argue in this passage that there ought to be something more in view than just fasting for fasting's sake. He says in verse 34, let me ask you a question. Does anyone go to a wedding and expect to go away hungry. Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? It's a simple argument. It's the sort of of argument any child can understand. It's the sort of you got to be kidding me kind of argument. Are you going to go to a wedding? Do you get dressed up Do you put on your Sunday best? Do you get ready and uh, prepare yourself to observe the joining together of a bride and a bridegroom and expect to go there and have some kind of bleak, uh, austere environment? You know, the music is in a minor key. You walk in with these long, dour, dour faces. You go in hungry and you walk away hungry. No, of course not. Now you throw the biggest celebration that you can and then you saddle up to the table and you rejoice. You rejoice in in, in that, that celebration. This is what Jesus is saying. 
To refuse to do that, in fact, would be an insult to the bridegroom. Now notice what Jesus is saying here. When you look at the course of redemptive history, he is telling us that his coming is the the high water mark of joy-inducing events. His appearance is the sort of thing that brings gladness to the hearts of men, gladness to those who understand what is happening in the incarnation. This is what his appearance means. The year of jubilee has arrived. The spirit of the Lord was upon him. Why did he say? To proclaim good news to the poor, liberty to the oppressed, recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now shall we all dress in mourning and call for a fast? Of course not. Let's rejoice. Let's rejoice and be glad in the Lord. Don't overlook what Jesus is saying here. Don't overlook what is embedded in the claim that he makes of himself. Christ the Lord is where true joy is found. It is in knowing him that ultimate gladness of heart is to be found. When Jesus says, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? He's saying, look at me. I am the fountain of all delight. I am the wellspring of the believer's joy. He is the reason that we can rejoice today, even if now for a little while it's necessary that we are grieved by various trials because we still have him. We still have the Savior. The Lord Jesus Christ can never be taken from us and we can never be stripped from his hand. Peter says, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Friends, do you know that joy? Joy inexpressible and filled with glory. You know something of what Peter is saying there. Jesus makes this remark as an aside in verse 35. He says, the days are going to come when the bridegroom is taken from them and then they will fast in those days. Already he's beginning to hint at his death. Already he is thinking about his purpose in coming. He's thinking about the cross. He is is thinking toward Calvary from the very beginning of his public ministry. There would be a short time between the crucifixion and the resurrection when the disciples would mourn and they would fast. You remember the sorrow that overtook them at the moment of Jesus' death and how even uh, so many of them fled from him. While they were still in the upper room, Jesus said this in John 16, in verse 16, a little while and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us a little while and you will not see me 
and again a little while, and you will see me, and because I am going to the Father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, is this what you are asking yourselves, what I meant by saying a little while, and you will not see me, and again a little while, and you will see me. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. Your sorrow will turn into joy. Now why did the disciples' sorrow turn into joy? Is because Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father. According to the working of God's great might, Christ was raised from the dead on the third day. The living Christ was returned to them. Now before that, before that, in between that period of his, his crucifixion and his resurrection, they mourned, they fasted. That was appropriate at that time. Brothers and sisters, fasting has its place, but fasting, properly understood, biblically understood, signals a kind of spiritual dissatisfaction, kind of spiritual dissatisfaction with the state of one's affairs. It can be used as an expression of sorrow or, or penitence or uh, spiritual longing. So there are times, even in this, this new covenant era, where a season of fasting or mourning may be appropriate or even what is called for, but the overall tenor of the Christian's life as one who has been united by faith with the risen Son of God, as one who possesses within him the hope of glory, is joy. It's joy. Beloved, how can that not be the case when our sins have been nailed to the cross? How can that not be the case when Christ says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand? When we have this kind of confidence, Job says, I know that my Redeemer lives and at the last he will stand on the earth and after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself and my eyes shall behold and not another, my heart faints within me. Oh, that God would restore to many the joy of his salvation and grant to many others the joy of his salvation for the very first time. But he is where it is found, in the Lord Jesus Christ. What does life look like when Jesus is in the picture? It is in knowing him. The Lord Jesus himself insists it is in knowing him, experiencing his nearness, knowing fellowship with the Son that his followers come to discover utter jubilation. They have every reason to join in the feast. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. The book of Revelation says, Church, the master is still bidding, ears, bidding those who have ears to hear to come. 
To borrow the words of Matthew 22 and verse 4, see, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. Come to the wedding feast. Christ has furnished the table. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste and see. Some people think that being a Christian makes you miserable. If I believe on Jesus Christ, I'm going to be miserable because over here is where is what I really want. This is, this is what is going to provide me the joy that my heart longs for. Friends, that is a lie. That is demonic deception. How far from the truth that really is. Look at so many here today. Look at a man like Levi who leaves everything behind and comes to know true joy in the fellowship of the Son. The kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy. Jesus prayed to the Father, I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. So there is a time to fast, and there's a time to feast, but mark this in your minds, everything hinges on the presence of Jesus Christ. Everything hinges on him. Now, to this, he adds a parable. Actually, he adds two of them, although they're, they're closely related, but two parables that he uses to, to demonstrate what has come in him. He uses this and, and he casts in sharp relief what has come in the incarnation against what has been known before in the old structures of Judaism. We're still thinking about that question in verse 33. He's still addressing this perceived incongruity between the manner of life of his disciples and what has come to characterize the Jews of the day. First he says this, no one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new and the piece from the new will not match the old. You see what he's saying. The first point of consideration here is the incompatibility of the new with the old. If you have a shirt with a hole in it and you go get a piece of new fabric and you try to mend that and you run it through the wash, that new patch is going to shrink and it's gonna tear away from that, from, the, from that hole in the old garment. Jesus says, no one does this. Everybody understands the principle here. But notice what's bound up in the illustration. The need here is not for a patch. It's for a garment that is altogether new. Altogether new. So that's what Jesus is saying here. He represents something that is decidedly New, something that the old structure of Judaism is not prepared to accommodate. There is a marked discontinuity between what has come before and what has arrived in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now that is going to have to be qualified and 
unpacked as we go along, the message of Christ does not represent a complete departure from what has come before. Far from that, it's, it's very much a continuation and a fulfillment of what has been anticipated since, really since the gospel was first declared to Adam in Genesis chapter three. But you cannot understand the Old Testament in its fullness without the lens of the New Testament. Jesus is not just the latest installment in terms of what you're already familiar with. In today's terms, it's not like a small update that you would install on your phone or your computer. The advent of Jesus Christ represents something decisively new in the unfolding purposes of redemption. The good news of the gospel is something new. It cannot be wedded to what has come before as if they were made of the same stuff. And you can see this in the Old Testament as well. In Jeremiah chapter 31 and verse 31, the prophet there speaks of the advent of the new covenant. Uh, Jeremiah 31 and verse 31, we read, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. So you see here how long before Christ's condescension, long before Jesus took on flesh and blood, it is the discontinuity of the new covenant with the old that is emphasized. His, his arrival signals a difference, not just in degree, but in kind, in terms of God's self-revelation. When Jesus says the kingdom of God is at hand, he is not saying to us, here's a little bit more religion you can throw on top of what you already know. He's saying this is a new age. The person and work of Christ represents a new era in redemptive history. Now, we come to verse 37, and that lesson is amplified even further. He says, and no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled and the skins will be destroyed. You may be familiar uh, with the way wine was stored in the ancient world. Skins usually of goats or sheep would be tanned uh, and they would be sewn up and new wine would be put into them where they could ferment. And over time, uh, those uh, skins would no longer accommodate new wine. Uh, they would become hardened and, and brittle. And if you put new wine into them, the skins would burst. And so the point here is intensified. 
In the first illustration, in the first parable, the patch pulls away from the old garment. They don't work. Jesus says they do not match. Here Jesus says if you try, if you try to make the old and the new work together, you lose everything. The wineskin becomes worthless, it bursts, and the wine itself is lost. And that's exactly what the Pharisees were trying to do. They were trying to force Jesus into the only paradigm that they knew, that of the old covenant, that of Judaism. So friends, when we scratch beneath the surface here, the the, the controversy over uh, eating and drinking, the controversy over things like fasting really reveals something much much deeper something much more significant. It's a much deeper problem in the minds of the Pharisees. If we limit our examination of this passage just to matters of eating and drinking and the legality of that sort of thing, we are missing the critical point Jesus is drawing our attention to. The whole issue of fasting really is just a foil for Christ to bring this out. He states it positively in verse 38, New wine must be put into fresh wineskins. The implications of those words cannot be overstated. Implicit here is the the eventual obsolescence of temple rites, the sacrificial system, the ceremonial law, the priesthood. All of that was provisional in nature The Bible tells us that those were only copies and shadows of the heavenly things. In Hebrews chapter eight, it says that Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. Jesus will eventually go on to say that he is the temple. He is the sacrifice. He is the great high priest. He is not just another prophet in a long line of prophets. He is the prophet greater than Moses, worthy of more glory than Moses. He came to establish the new covenant, a covenant that was inaugurated not in the blood of goats and sheep, but a covenant inaugurated in his own blood, offered once for all time. The old covenant was not designed to stick around after Christ came. The writer to the Hebrews actually quotes from Jeremiah Uh, chapter 31, he talks about Christ's finished work with this wonderful sense of finality. He cites from that same prophecy in, in Jeremiah 31, I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. And then looking back on the fulfillment of that, he says this, in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. That's the tragedy of verse 39. Jesus says, and no one after drinking old wine desires new for he says the old is good. You might read that 
at first glance and think, well, wait a minute. I thought Jesus' point here was to say that we need to make room for the new. That's exactly right. He is not contradicting himself. He is speaking from the perspective of those who are accustomed to the old. It's really an indictment against those who reject what has come in him. They want to hold on to the only thing that they know. What would Christ have them to see? What would Christ have us to see? He would have us to see that he is different, yes, but he is also delightful. He is wonderful. He is where true joy is to be found. Now you get the impression as you read through this passage that Jesus cannot go anywhere without the Pharisees breathing down his neck, looking to stir up trouble and and pick a fight with him. In chapter six and verse one, Jesus and his disciples are taking their, their Sabbath afternoon stroll. They're walking through the grain fields and as they do, they're, they're rubbing the heads of grain. They're plucking them and rubbing them between their hands and, and eating. And as they do, the Pharisees come alone and they say, ha, gotcha. Why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? They thought that they had caught them red-handed, breaking the fourth commandment. Look at what Jesus says, how he answers them. Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those with him. Now that story takes us back to 1 Samuel 21, where uh, David is on the run from Saul, and he comes into the land of Nob, and he encounters uh, Ahimelech, the priest, uh, where the tent of meeting is, is set up, and David and his men are hungry, and Ahimelech gives him the bread of the presence, even though David wasn't a priest and uh, neither were his men, uh, they still get to eat there. Now remember who Jesus is talking to here. He's talking to Pharisees. He's talking to teachers of the law, people who know the scriptures. And so when Jesus prefaces what he says uh, with the words, have you not read He does not mean literally speaking. Now, are you familiar with that story in 1 Samuel 21? They didn't have chapters and all of that. But but are you familiar with that that, that story? Have you you ever read that, that episode of biblical history? That's not what he means here. He is saying, don't you get it? He's challenging their interpretation. He's saying, you don't understand this at all. So again, brothers and sisters, the point here is not what kind of exceptions are allowable on the Sabbath day, although that comes into play, but that is not the main issue at hand. The bigger issue is this, what does Christ's ministry demonstrate about his saving purposes in the world? What does his approval of his disciples being fed on the Sabbath day, teach us about him. Teach us about who he is, about what his ministry entails 
even to us. You can find it there in verse 5. Christ's claim again, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. It was a question of, of, of authority. The point here is not just uh, to, to pit the legalism of the Pharisees against this perceived libertinism of Jesus. There is far more at stake here than that. Is It's the question of who has the authority to interpret Scripture. Well, it's no accident then that we immediately see Jesus' authority on display in the, in, in the verses that follow. Verse 6, it's another Sabbath. There is in the, in the synagogue this man with a withered hand. Again, Pharisees are watching, they're waiting, they're going to uh, see whether he will heal on the Sabbath. Now notice there, young people, that there is no question in the Pharisees' minds as to whether Jesus has the ability to heal. They're simply waiting to see if they can catch him. They know that this man has the ability to heal. They take that for granted. They're just looking to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts, and he said to the man with the withered hand, come and stand here. And he rose and stood there. And now he turns to the Pharisees in verse nine, and I want you to see how Jesus frames things here. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? He does not say, is it lawful to do good or to refrain from doing good? He does not ask them, is it lawful to save life or to walk away. According to Christ, to refuse to do good when you have the ability to do so is tantamount to doing evil. And so Christ doesn't allow any of us to stand off on the sidelines. He he does not afford a position of neutrality here. After looking around at them all, he said to him, stretch out your hand, and he did so, and his hand was restored. Christ came to do good. Christ came to save. Praise be to God. Now you see here that the Pharisees reject that. They reject Christ's claims for himself. Uh, They reject his authority, uh, both in general and over the Sabbath. They are filled with malice toward the Lord and they discuss what they might do with him. Now you see the irony here. Can you imagine a more severe way of violating God's purpose for the Sabbath day than than seeking to kill the Lord of life, than seeking to put to death the Lord of the Sabbath? And again, I will remind you, these are the same men who are so concerned with fasting and religious traditions and uh, the observance of the law in the passages before. What does that teach us? What a danger it is to abstract the trappings of religion from a vital living relationship with Jesus Christ. But what a real possibility that is. What a real 
possibility it is to zealously, scrupulously give yourself over to spiritual discipline and to careful adherence of the law, all while missing the only one who can satisfy your soul. To have in the end nothing but empty externalism. And so we come to our own account. When you take in all of your religious activity, when you consider all of your prayer and fasting and spiritual discipline, what has come of it? Is your heart filled with love for Christ, for the one who has saved your soul? Is your life marked by the joy of knowing Christ? There is joy for you to be found today if you will turn to him. If you will turn in faith and repentance, there is joy to be found in knowing the Lord Jesus Christ. Look to him in repentance and faith. The Bible says he will put more joy in your heart than when much wine and grain abounds. This is his promise. Let's pray. Father, precious Lord, God, we pray that you would use this word for your namesake in our lives. God, we come asking that you would purge us of our false religion. God, I pray that you would forgive us of all of our vain attempts at keeping up appearances, putting on some guise of spirituality, that we might be able to be seen by others. Lord, you know what's in our hearts already. God, we, we know also that what we really need is to have it impressed upon our hearts that it is in your presence that we find fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. For we find ourselves running continually in all kinds of other directions, looking for other things to satisfy us. Forgive us our sins, O God. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for the Lord Jesus. God, I thank you that in him, you have brought us to your banqueting table and your banner over us is love. Lord, we thank you for the glory of your salvation. Thank you for the love that you have shed abroad in our hearts. God, where there is that need today, I pray that you would restore the joy of your salvation. God, grant that we would rejoice in you at all times. Fill us with all joy and peace in believing. Lord, as we wait on the return of your blessed Son, our hope is in him, and we worship and adore you, O God. In Jesus' name, amen.